I've only had one bra, I think, where like the underwire has come out. Hmm. Not only do I frequently have my underwire poke through, but also the underwire tends to snap in the middle underneath. I don't know how. They're just so large and in charge that they're just like... <laughs> we can't be contained! Boom! Boom. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome back to the show. Woohoo! We're into the second half of our first century worth of shows. Yeah. So, creeping up there. But yes. Yeah. Yes. And we've had a very busy week. Lots of listeners. Oddly enough, someone in uh, Serbia is binge listening to us, apparently. So, hello, our Serbian listener. Yes. Uh, I assume Belgrade is a lovely city. <laughs> I've never been. But Neither have I. So. <laughs> You'll have to tell us. But uh, yeah. So um, other than that, what's new with you? Uh, we poured our foundation today. Ooh. And of course, it has to be the only time it rained in the last two months. And it poured. Well, yeah. like, hoard. Hmm. So, and most of the soil around our house, because we scraped off all the topsoil. Mm-hmm. Uh, is clay, and that, when it gets wet, is, like, the stickiest yeah. substance known to man. So Dan said at one point he was walking, and his sneaker got stuck with the suction, and he actually, it stayed where he, <laughs> he continued. Yeah, he fell out of his shoe, and he's like, now it's all over my sock. Well, now he knows he's got to wear work boots up there. <laughs> well, he normally would, because, you know, that's what he does. But yes. he forgot to bring them home on mm. Friday. And his backup pair is up there. Hmm. Well, that doesn't I know. make a whole lot of sense. Well, because <laughs> that's where he wears them most. True. You know, he true, needs true. them five days a week. So if he forgets them at home, <laughs> he needs his backup pair if they get wet or something. So yeah, he totally forgot to bring his boots home with him. Poor dance. Yeah. So <laughs> he was mucking through the muck that is our lot, I'm sure. Right. So sticky. But it's underway. It's underway? Ish. Ish. We have a lot of stuff to pick out. Yeah. So much stuff to pick <laughs> out. So. Well, on that note, let's dive into our stories. And since I went first last week, you get to go first this week. Sweet. So tell me a story. So to continue on with my space theme. Okay. I want to talk about the annual Perseid meteor shower. Oh, all right. I've heard of this. Yeah. So this typically happens uh, later in the summer and it run, runs from July 17th to August 26th. But this year, the peak nights are August 12th to 13th. Okay. This meteor shower is pretty spectacular and it typically produces a ru- about roughly 100 meteors an hour at its peak in dark sky locations. So hmm. like my, my way, I'll see a lot. Right. So okay. I've, I've watched this uh, this wonderful show a few years now uh, because I live in the middle of nowhere and it's quite it can be quite dark out my way. Right. Plus, we're pretty close to um, a, a place where there's actually our bylaws dictate that you can't have uplighting on your house. Uh, so, like our neighbors when they build, they originally had their garage lights were sort of like a standard light, mm-hmm. um, a standard outdoor light, but. When they had their inspection, they said, no, you actually have to change your lights so they only point down. 
Huh. Uh, because of lake pollution. Oh. Mill mill of cattails or something. Anyways. All the way out there, they're worried about light pollution? Yeah, because of this specific uh, (laughs) conservation area. Oh, okay. So it's the the bylaws around that place. But uh, this year, however, the peak nights will be hindered a bit by the full moon, which is August the 15th. So the fact that the moon will be about 95% full on the 12th to 13th means that only the brightest meteors will be visible. Um, But that's not the end of watching, however, as it happens over many nights and produces a lot of bright meteors from day one. So, Hmm. and actually the best time to see it is like early morning, really. So uh, it could be quite spectacular. Uh, Most meteors you see in the sky are only about the size of a grain of sand. Wait, what do you mean? Like when they hit the atmosphere, they're all this? So, but because they're burning up, you still see them quite bright. Uh, But sometimes they can be as large as a pebble, and it's these pebble-sized objects that produce fireballs or extremely bright meteors. See, I would have thought you wouldn't even notice the sand ones, because they would just disintegrate so quickly. You don't notice them too much, but and it's the pebble-sized ones that you really see. But still, they're only the size of pebbles, but, like, we could see them. Right. Hmm. It's pretty spectacular. Um, And that's something that is associated with this particular meteor shower, which is very good news. Since this year, the moon will be so bright. To check out this meteor shower, you don't need any fancy equipment. You just need a spot out of a city with a little light pollution, a blanket, or a lawn chair in time. It takes about 30 minutes for your eyes to really adjust. Oh, okay. But uh, I find it cool because as your eyes adjust, you see more and more and more. Right. So you're not necessarily too stoned. Uh, <laughs> it's helpful if you are a little bit because it does enhance the experience. <laughs> But, like, you're sitting out there and you're like, oh, man, now I can see. And then by the time the 30 minutes is up, you can see so much definition of, like, hmm. yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I like to sit out on my lawn. See, and I'm too much of a chicken to do that. Like, I guess part of that anxious, when I was a kid, like, scary mm. stories tell you in the dark, like, what's creeping around out there waiting for me? <laughs> I'm just sitting in my backyard, so... <laughs> I usually do it with somebody else because I agree. Like, it can be pretty creepy. Someone who runs slower, right? <laughs> uh, Dan. He's bound by law to protect me. <laughs> Slash can't sue you if he's eaten by something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, got it. <laughs> uh, so put away the phone because, again, it, the uh, light, it makes it harder for your eyes. And it takes 30 minutes from looking at light to totally adjust back. But once you're adjusted, it's pretty spectacular. As I said, the best time to watch is early in the morning when the Perseid is highest in the sky. You might notice that if you trace the meteors back, you'll see that their point of origin is the constellation Perseus, from which the shower gets its name. Uh, okay. But you don't necessarily need to look in that direction because, again, as I said, at their peak, they're producing 100 meteors an hour. Right. But where do they come from and why are they an annual thing? To be honest, the first time I ever heard of them is an episode of Curious George. Nice. <laughs> yeah, where Allie, the five-year-old girl who comes to live at the farm next door with her grandparents, is trying to get a picture of them for her father, her grandfather, but she doesn't know what they are. And when he says his favorite things are the Perseids, she actually thinks they're little creatures that look there in the shape of purses Aww. that you find early in the morning. So she makes name the Bill, Bill, their other neighbor, and George get up with her for like three or four mornings. Right. 
to take pictures of the Perseids. Right. Try to find... So they're, like, going around and trying to find these, like, mythical creatures. Little troll or elf-like things. Yes, that are the shape of purses, because this is how the mind of a five-year-old works. Yes. So anyways, they ended up taking pictures, and when they're showing her grandfather, he's like, oh my god, like, you've got these pictures of the Perseids. And they're like, it's just stars. He's like, no, that's what they are. And they're like, oh! (laughs) She was really disappointed they weren't, like, creatures shaped like purses. (laughs) The Perseids occur as a result of Earth passing through the path of the enormous icy comet Swift-Tuttle as it orbits the sun. Comet Swift-Tuttle, and I say this a lot because I actually enjoy the Swift-Tuttle. Tuttle, T-U-D-D-L. T-U-T-T, Tuttle. Tuttle, okay. Yeah. I was wondering if it was the Newfie and I was mishearing Tunnel or something like that. Nope. Tuttle. Tuttle. Okay. Yep. Swift Tuttle. <laughs> Takes 133 years to orbit the sun and its nucleus is roughly 26 kilometers across. As a reference, most comets are usually only a few meters. Okay. And that's almost twice the size of the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. Oh, so we definitely don't want to cross paths with it too closely. As a result, Swift-Tuttle sheds a ton of debris compared to other comets just because it's so big. Um, And this is what creates that awe-inspiring show we see every August. Uh, The comet was independently discovered by Lewis Swift on July 16, 1862, and Horace Perel-Tuttle on July 19, 1862. Horace Tuttle had a hard time at school, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. I think he was British, too, which... (laughs) Yeah. That does not sound like a name that would have done well at British boarding school. No. No. Not at all. (laughs) Probably why he's looking at comets. Uh, But sightings of this comet date back as far as 68 BCE and was visible to the naked eye again in 322 BC and 862 when it was quote-unquote discovered it was as bright as polaris aka the north star uh the comet made a return again in 1992 when it was rediscovered by a japanese astronomer whose name i will not be able to pronounce so i won't even try (laughs) and because it was visible with binoculars when estimating uh when a comet will return astronomers look for other references of the comet so after 1862 they estimated the comet would whiz by again between 1979 and 1983. When it didn't show up, someone went through the records and thought that the comet seen in 1737 was one and the same. With this sort of extra data point, British astronomer Brian Marsden calculated that it would only return in 1992, and as I said, he was correct. So if it takes 100 and some odd years to make its rotation around the sun. A full rotation. So we would see it... So are we in, like, a window for this Perseid shower that we're getting? No, it, I guess the, sh- the tail of it is so big that that's why we end up with it every oh, year. Oh, okay. I guess. I didn't really look at that. Okay. I probably should have, because I think I asked myself the same question. Okay. Today, but um, we do get them every year. Swift-Tuttle is an, on an orbit that makes repeated close approaches to the Earth-Moon system. It has an oblong orbit that passes the Sun pretty close to our orbit. But the other end is where it's pretty close to Pluto's orbit. So, oh, boy. Like, that's so why. That's huge. They have better terms than other end, but I couldn't pronounce them. And uh, yes, I actually not... had to look up what they meant. Yeah, we're not astrophysicists either, so that makes sense. <laughs> astrophysicists? <laughs> With it passing so close to us, it 
and it being so large, there's some concern that it could pose a threat. But with Brian Morrison's history lesson and updated calculations, it proves that the orbit is actually really stable and poses no threat to us for about the next 2,000 years. At which point, we don't care, so... <laughs> At the way we're going, we might not even see it, okay? <laughs> However, it will come very close again in 2126, and again in 3044, and even closer in 4479. And after 4479, it will become a little harder to predict as the orbit can change. Yeah, it's had a nice long lifespan of staying the same. Everyone needs to mix it up every now and then. So it's the largest, it's the largest solar system object that makes repeated close approaches to Earth with a relative velocity of 60 kilometers per second. Whew. An Earth impact would have the estimated energy of 27 times that of the comet that took out the dinosaurs. <laughs> so it's going to be a real rough day the next day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that would be, like, a massive... Oh, immediately catastrophic instead oh, yeah. of, like, an hour or two catastrophic, like it probably was with the dinosaurs. Got it. And I, yeah, it would be pretty hard for many things. We would not survive. No. So, uh, Comet Swift-Tuttle has been described as the single most dangerous object known to humanity. So if it <laughs> that hit, was before Trump, right? <laughs> so if it hit us, we'd be all hella dead. Huh? Because the dinosaurs, like the dinosaurs, I don't think humanity would survive. Like, I don't think we'd be like the crocodiles and a few other things. We're that, at the point where, like when people are mean to us on Twitter, we have meltdowns. So that is true. yeah, I, I don't no, no, think no, no. we're surviving. <laughs> no, we've become way too soft. <laughs> Haven't we ever? Yes. So if you're wondering uh, when the next comment will come by, well, the answer is anytime. If you have the right equipment and are somewhere dark in the month of August, there's actually 17 comets that are visible. Hmm. However, with a range in magnitude, which is another way of saying brightness from plus 13 to the best of minus nine. Here, like golf, the lowest number is better. Oh, okay. As for when we will see another big, bright comet that will be, become famous, they're not, they don't seem to be 100% sure. Without historical data, it's hard to predict the paths of comets, especially with new or new-to-us comets. So some orbits are small and they move quicker, and some are very long and they move very slowly. Here are a few famous or notable comets. So you might think... What's Hell Bob? Yes. The first one that See, comes to mind. I said, what's the first comet to... Like, what's the most famous comet you could think of to Dan? And he went, Haley's Comet. Oh. And I'm like, not Hale Bob? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like... You and I are dark and twisted, though. So yeah, that might have been it. <laughs> that is true. So, uh, because Dan named it first, it became first in my list. So Haley's Comet is perhaps the most fam famous comet in history. It's named after British astronomer Edmund Haley, who calculated its orbit. He determined that the comet seen in 1531 and 1607 were the same object that follows a 76-year orbit. Unfortunately, he died before 1742, uh, so he never lived to see his prediction come came through when the comet returned on Christmas Eve in the year of 1758. So he was right that it was actually a 76-year orbit. Hmm. Um, so we see Halley's Comet much more frequently. Uh, each time this comet orbits the sun, approaches the sun, it's 
uh, 15 kilometer nucleus sheds about six meters or seven yards of ice and rock into space. This debris forms an orbiting trail that, when falling to Earth, is called Oromidus? Oh, Orionids? Meteor shower. <laughs> um, and Halley's Comet will return to the inner solar system in year 2061. So we have a chance of seeing it. Yeah. Uh, astronomers Carolyn and Eugene Shoemaker and David Levy discovered a comet in 1993 as... With the comets, it tends to be named after whoever found it. So it's Sh the Shoemaker-Levy comet. Between July 16th and July 22, 1994, comet Shoemaker-Levy broke up, raining over 20 pieces down on the planet Jupiter. The Hubble Space Telescope took many spectacular pictures of this event as the comet pieces crashed into Jupiter's southern hemisphere. It was the first collision of two solar system bodies ever to be recorded, and the impact created atmospheric plumes many thousands of kilometers high that showed as red-hot bubbles of gas with large dark scars covering the planet's sky. Ugh. Very cool, but it didn't really pass us per se. We just saw the breakup and impact into Jupiter. Right. So. As a, a fortune of what could happen to us if you will. exactly yeah it was not pretty I, well it was probably pretty pretty but not if you were on the surface of jupiter at the time so as we talked about the last but not least on july 23rd 1995 an unusually large and bright comet was seen outside of jupiter's orbit by alan hale of new mexico and thomas bopp of arizona <laughs> i didn't know that was an actual name of a dude and i feel sorry for him as well yes Thomas Bop. <laughs> Careful analysis of the Hubble Space Telescope images suggested that an intense brightness was due to its extremely large size. Again, most comets are about one to two, three kilometers across. Hale Bob's was estimated 40 kilometers across. Woof. So it's a big one. Um, it was visible even through bright skies. Bright city skies such as Chicago and may have been the most viewed comet in recorded history. Because, again, it was so bright. Also, Comet Hale-Bopp holds the record for the longest period of naked eye visibility at the astonishing 19 months. Wow. It was so bright, we saw it for over a year. Wow. That's the kind of thing that, like, a few centuries ago would have been either the beginning or the end of a dynasty or something. <laughs> I know, right? Like... It would. It will not appear for another two thousand four hundred years. That's how long its orbit is. Oh boy, that is sizable. Yes, <laughs> and as cool as that is, that's not why we remember it. it. Yeah, that would be the mass suicide of forty members of the Hale a Heaven's Gate cult. Heaven's Gate was an American UFO religion cult based near San Diego, California, and it was founded in nineteen seventy four led by Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles. They believe that the planet Earth would recycle, a.k.a. wipe clean, renew, refurbish, and regenerate before 2027. I mean, okay. We've, we haven't proven them wrong yet. They could uh, be and right. And only they're laughing and we're stuck with egg on our face. That's true. <laughs> they're laughing from the spaceship behind Haley or Mbop, whatever comment. Haley, Haley, Hansen. Handsome comet, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Don't 
Have we looked into that link yet? Is it possible the Hansons are just like believers of this? Maybe. What is it? Heaven's Gate? Heaven's group? Gate, yes. And the only chance, so they believe that the only chance for their consciousness, defined as sometimes as a soul or mind, to survive was to leave their human bodies at an appointed time, like most cults. Initially, the group had been told that they would be transported with their bodies on board a spacecraft that would come to Earth and take the crew to heaven, referred to as the next level. But when Bonnie Lou Nettle died of cancer in 1985, it confounded Applewhite's doctrine because Nettles was allegedly chosen by the next level to be the messenger on Earth, yet her body died instead of leaving physically to outer space. Don't you hate when that happens? I know. So they rewrote their belief system, and it was refined to include the leaving of consciousness from the body was equivalent to leaving the Earth in a spaceship. Okay. Yeah. So they believed that to be eligible for membership to the next level, humans would have to shed every attachment to the planet. This meant all members had to give up all human-like characteristics, such as their family, friends, sexuality, individuality, jobs, money, and possessions. Uh, conveniently, I'm sure a lot of that money and possessions needed to be funneled into the leader's pockets and hands. The leader's was one of the people who died, too. Well, yeah, but to start off with. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't look into that much. but So, the evolutionary level above humans was the a physical corporal place, another world in our universe where residents live in pure bliss and nourish themselves by absorbing pure sunlight. At the next level, beings do not engage in sexual intercourse, eating or dying, the things that make us mammalian here. And Heaven, make life fun. <laughs> yeah. Heaven's Gate believes that what the Bible calls God is actually a highly developed extraterrestrial. Members believe that evil space aliens called Luciferians falsely represented themselves to Earthlings as quote-unquote God and conspired to keep humans from developing. Developing. This would have been around the chariots of the God age, too. Yeah. The 80s. Technically advanced humanoids... These aliens had spaceships, space time travel, telepathy, and increased longevity. They used holograms to fake miracles, carnal beings with genders. They stopped training to achieve the kingdom of God thousands of years ago. Heaven's Gates Gators believed that all existing religions on near Earth had been corrupted by these evil aliens. Sure. <laughs> yep, yep. Actually, my notes go, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to create your own religion, you got to swing big. I mean, nowadays, you don't have the whole uneducated masses to play your... Exactly. ...wine into, from water, miracles off on. So you've got to really hit for the fences on that one. And this was before they raised Tupac from the dead with the hologram at some festival. Mm, true. Uh, so back to the stars. Your best night to look up, way up might be from August 9th onward, as the frequency of meteors will increase the closer we get to the peak. And be sure not to look away, you might miss them, as they're fast. Perseids can travel, as I said, 60 kilometers a second. And there's a little bonus for night sky observing. On October 9th, Jupiter and the moon will be very close together in the southern sky. Hmm. So... I mean, they say that, but, like, Jupiter just looks like a star. I know. Uh, Because I don't have a telescope. So enjoy looking at the stars, everybody, while you get stoned. Get into your backyards. 
take out the lawn chairs and uh, enjoy. Maybe have some holy water and a bat, just in case. You never know what's creeping out there in the dark with you. So, just saying. <laughs> or bring a child so that you can outrun them. Whichever. <laughs> I mean, really, at this stage of my life, that's the only reason to have children. <laughs> that's the reason we're friends. <laughs> I'm 100% sure you could outrun me. That's what I mean. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I would need one of your children. <laughs> I hope to return her at the end of the night. <laughs> no promises. You have to take Victoria because I'm pretty sure Elizabeth can outrun you too. Probably. <laughs> She's a fast little girl. <laughs> so that's my story. Nice. So my story is also about stars, but of a very, very different kind. Uh... For my birthday this year, you got me the first season of The Golden Girls. Thank you very much, by the way. Loved it. Uh, And I put in an Amazon order a couple weeks ago with a bunch of little things in it. So I added season two to my checkout. uh, And then I binge watched that like within a couple of days because it's really good. But the premiere and the second episode of the second season really blew my mind. So between those two episodes, the ladies are talking about their impressions of menopause and then their first periods. And then in the second episode, Burt Reynolds guest stars. What blew my mind was the amount of juice that both of these things demonstrated that the show had. First, that the studio went hands-off enough to let them talk about menstruation at length. When's the last time you saw that on primetime? Yeah, no. Exactly. Uh, And one of the biggest movie stars of the age, at its height, guest starred on, like, season two with the full stash and the full, like, chest hair out. Like, it was a whole thing. And that was just for the second season. Like, you would expect a, a smash hit, maybe would get that season four, five, or six, but this was season two and right out of the gate. So I realized as I'm watching it how big of a smash hit it had to have been. And since I was very high at the time when I had this realization, I immediately wanted to jump down a rabbit hole about the show. So here we are. My story this week is all about the Golden Girls. Yay! <laughs> so let's talk details. IMDb's description of the show is that four previously married women live together in Miami, sharing their various experiences together and enjoying themselves despite hard times. Pretty high level, I guess. That is a craptacular description of the show. Well, I mean, they had a roof over their head and food in their bellies, so how hard is it really? But Also, like, just previously married? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, instead of saying, like, widow, divorced. Or just, like, four women... Yes. To be fair, the men in their lives do define a lot of the plot yes, that development and movement. So. Uh, the Golden Girls ran on NBC for seven seasons from 1985 to 1992 and had 177 episodes total. And my mind got blown a little bit when I saw 1985 because that was the year I was born. <laughs> That's five. <laughs> Over its run, the show won Golden Globes for Best Comedy Television Series in 1986. So the second year it was on the air but also 87 and 88. Estelle Getty won a Best Actress in a Comedy Series in 1986. To be fair, though, she did tie with Sybil Shepard from Moonlighting that year. B. Arthur and Estelle Getty won Emmys in 1988. The show won the Emmy for Comedy Series in 87. And Rube McClanahan won the Lead Actress Award for the same category in that year. The show also won the 1986 Emmy. And Betty White won the Lead Actress that year. Estelle and Betty won American Comedy Awards in 1990, 91, and 92. The show won the People's Choice Award in 1986 for favorite new TV comedy based off the strength of their first season. And the directing team was either nominated or won awards for each year the show was on the air. 
So it was critical and fan hit, like right away. All told, in its run, the show won 36 awards and had 88 additional nominations. And honestly, I think they should have gotten more. The ability to listen to slash deliver the Rosen Island stories and not ruin every single take with a break must have taken huge skills. Um, in fact, during the Heron War stories that Rose tells, Rue and B broke character so badly and the whole thing kept getting out of hand so much that they were going to cut the scene from the episode entirely because there was just barely anything salvageable in the filming. But they decided to keep it in the episode to show just how good the comedy could get. And that's from, I think, the second season. By the way, for a complete accounting of the Great Herring War, you should check out St. Olaf's Story's webpage, <laughs> which is a blog that like collected all of them. And I will link to that in the show notes. It is delightful. <laughs> it's a little palate cleanser for when the world gets too crabtacular. Yes, exactly. Uh, the show was created by Susan Harris, who also created Empty Nest, which is a spin-off fish production of Golden Girls. Uh, she was also very tied in with the creation of the show Soap and Benson. So I believe Benson was a spin-off of Soap, if I'm not wrong. I don't know, Benton, but I do know Stoke. And I used to watch Empty Nest as well. Yes, I watched Empty Nest too. It was good. Uh, she was also a writer for shows like Maud, which B. Arthur was the star of, All in the Family, and The Partridge Family. So she had a big background when she came to The Golden Girls. The show stars, or The Golden Girls, if you will, were obviously B. Arthur, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty. Uh, so B. Arthur, or Beatrice, as she's credited on all of the DVDs and episodes, which I don't think in a million years I would have ever called her Beatrice Arthur, but there it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Mm. Uh, well, she got her start in television in 1951 on a show called Once Upon a Tune, which presented short musicals for television. Uh, she was a character called Maud Finley on All in the Family, which led to her own spinoff show, Maud. Maud was groundbreaking in its own right. It ran from 1972 to 78 and tackled issues like racism and abortion. In fact, that abortion episode won a humanitarian award from some writing outfit because it was so advanced. Uh, as an aside, she was also one of the stars of the Star Wars holiday special. Oh my god, was she? <laughs> she was. <laughs> I did not know that, and that is like... That's because I don't think very many people alive have seen it. <laughs> so after Golden Girls, B. Arthur had some small parts in shows like Emily of New Moon, Malcolm in the Middle, Futurama, and her last role was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but Golden Girls was her last big and long-term show. And I mean, she didn't really need to do much after that, given her involvement in All in the Family and Maude. She was probably set for life at that point. And she was also 60 when the show ended in 92, so. Maybe she did some theater. Yes, maybe. But it didn't pop up on IMDb, which makes sense because it's the movie TV database. But yeah. Uh, and then she passed away in 2009. So, up next, a little bit of information on Rue McClanahan. Her career, yikers. She has 121 credits listed on IMDb. The first being in 1971 on a soap called Love of Life. She had one or two episode parts on shows like All in the Family, Trapper John M.D., Fantasy Island, Alice, Murder, She Wrote, Boy Meets World, Murphy Brown, Columbo, Touched by an Angel, King of the Hill, and Law and Order. Quite a mixed bag. Yeah. But I remember the show Alice, too, because it used to be on syndication. Yes. Yep. 
she was also a featured actress on Maud, Mama's Family, and The Love Boat. So she had quite a career um, in TV. <laughs> Uh, her career was a mix of TV shows and TV movies, and then she passed away in 2010. Then we have my fave, who is Estelle Getty. She was born in 1923, making her a year younger than B. Arthur, by the way. And she didn't start her acting career until 1981, when she was on an episode of a drama called Nurse, uh, which was created by Sue Grafton, of all people, the author. Huh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and that was 1981, and then Golden Girls started in 82. So she had a very short career before it exploded into stardom. Estelle's career was, like I said, brief before Golden Girls, but she had some big name shows on her resume as well um, after she started. Uh, Fantasy Island, Cagney and Lacey, Blossom, she was on that, as Sophia Petrillo, by the way. It was a weird crossover. That's strange. Because Blossom was NBC as well. I have I to don't remember that. Yeah, it's a blink and you miss it. I'm sure it's one episode type of thing. But what's funny is I'll have to keep an eye out because I'm pretty sure that there's a station that's running Blossom on reruns. Oh, okay. Yes. Do do keep an eye out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then she also had a guest spot on Mad About You. So another kind of mixed bag of what she appeared in. Uh, she was also able to have a crossover career into movies, which was a lot harder then than it is now. So she was in Tootsie. Uh, she starred in Stop or My Mama Will Shoot as the titular mama. Um, <laughs> I, I do remember that. Yes. Uh, Mannequin and Stuart Little was one of her last roles. She played a grandmother, of course, on Stuart Little. So. And she passed in 2008. So that brings us to the last and only living Golden Girls and current beloved of the meme culture, and that is Betty White. Uh, Betty has had a huge, huge. career, uh, but she has fewer credits listed than Rue McClanahan did. She only got 117, whereas Rue had 121. Close, but. Her first credit was a short film from 1945 called Time to Kill, about what soldiers would rather be doing than fighting. Her first big part was as Elizabeth on a show called Life with Elizabeth that ran from 1952 to 55. And other notable credits on her resume include Petticoat Junction, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Betty White Show, The Love Boat, Who's the Boss, Mama's Family, Bob, That 70s Show, Boston Legal, and The Bold and the Beautiful, which was more recent and was a substantial run as well. So I think Betty was knocking things off of her bucket list of like, I started on soaps, I'd like to go back there. I did not know that. Uh, she was also on Bones and Community. And I think the community is where the whole, like, youth culture, like, re-fell in love with her and, like, her... Her zaniness? Yeah. Like, just exploded once again. Uh, and, of course, she was one of the leads in the show Hot in Cleveland that ran from 2010 to 2015. For the most part, she's been in TV shows, but also a lot of TV movies. And now that her popularity is experiencing that resurgence, she's done a few movies as well. Like You Again, she voiced a character in The Lorax, and she'll be in Toy Story 4 as a toy called Bitey White. <laughs> but also, let's not forget The Proposal. Was she in that? Yes, she was Ryan Reynolds' grandma. Is, is that she... not You Again? No, that's The Proposal. So it's like Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds. I don't. Th- I think I missed that one. <gasps> You've not seen that movie. You definitely have to look it up because it's actually <laughs> quite funny. But she plays this like crazy grandma. Right. They live in Alaska. Okay. 
So Sandra Bullock's character is Canadian, but she's an editor for yes. like a massive, and she used to marry her assistant to get yeah. a green card. Yeah. So, but they go to they go to Alaska to visit his family, and she meets like his kind of kooky grandma. Right. And she's sort of like having a bad day, Sandra Bullock, and she meets her in the woods, and Grandma's dressed up in some like let's say maybe not culturally sensitive <laughs> garb. She's got a fire and she's like, you need to chant. So Sandra Bullock does this whole thing where she's dancing with Betty White and she's like, my balls, my big sweaty. <laughs> you definitely have to yeah, watch this movie. Yes. yes. Uh, so those are the four main actors. Uh, and fun fact, the producers originally wanted Rue McClanahan to play a version of the naive Vivian Cavender from Maud, the TV show. And Betty White to play a version of the man-hungry Sue Ann Nivens from the Mallory Tyler Moore show. So kind of reprise those stereotypical roles. B. Arthur didn't want any part of a show that kind of had them just playing the same roles over again. So they decided to switch roles, luckily, because I could not picture Betty White as Blanche Devereaux and Blanche Devereaux as no. Rose Nyland. So thank goodness that they made that executive decision <laughs> before they got too far in the process. So these women were big deals in their own right before the show started. Estelle Getty was probably the only one that wasn't already a star, uh, but the show also featured a lot of guest stars that were big names or would become big names. So of course, like I said, Burt Reynolds in the very early second season. Sophia meets him at an event and he's picking her up for lunch the next day from the house. And when the girls answer the door, they're all standing there stunned except for Sophia. And Bert leans down and asks Sophia which one is the slut, and all three hands of the other women shoot up and they all exclaim that they are. <laughs> which, I mean, yeah, I was high, but like it was a drop dead funny moment. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so I know. Not. <laughs> uh, George Clooney, looking like he was straight from the set of Roseanne, uh, played a cop on the show. With, like, he also looked like he was 10. Yes, with like the huge hair, the oh, yeah, big that, wave. Um, yeah. yeah, the almost hockey hair. And, yeah, like, a little a bit little... of a mullet without like the back end of the mullet yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite the quaff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mario Lopez yes. was a student of Dorothy's, who she was tutoring in her home. She published a, a story of his without him knowing in the newspaper, and he got deported because the authorities found out about him, and he was in the country illegally. And, like, Dorothy makes a big deal, like, I'm going to get you back. Like, we'll do everything we can to get you back. I don't think he's ever heard from again. In the no, he's series. never <laughs> heard from again in the entire series. So like white guilt when she could see it. But after that, like whatever. <laughs> uh, it must have been before even Saved by the Bell because his voice hadn't dropped yet. And so it sounds like Mario Lopez, but I'm listening to him. I was like, oh, your voice has not changed yet. No. <laughs> it will get deeper. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> uh, Quentin Tarantino once made an appearance as an Elvis impersonator in the last uh, season. Not know that. I did not remember oh, that Oh, he would have been like a background, yeah. can you miss it type of thing. Uh, Leslie Nielsen dated and then married Dorothy in the last season of the show. Yes, I remember that. Jeffrey Tambor played Dorothy's doctor at one point. Very poorly, like a bad doctor, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and then other big names, uh, stars of the era popped up as themselves or just for like one kind of seen pop in like Julio Iglesias, um, Mickey Rooney, Bob Hope, Dick Van Dyke, Cesar Romero, and Alex Trebek. So either dating the women or in dreams or whatever. <laughs> and those are the names that I recognize. I'm sure if you were born in the 50s and 60s, There's the faces and names yeah. would have been more familiar, but I have no frame of reference for them. And of course, because we're talking about Hollywood, 
once something makes money, you have to keep going back to that well. So the Golden Girls actually spun off a few different shows from the original uh, run. So in 1992, when B. Arthur left the show, uh, it was retooled by Suzanne Harris and became The Golden Palace. It only aired for 24 episodes or one season. And the girls without Dorothy move out of their house and open the Golden Palace Hotel. And then it becomes like a Faulty Towers yeah. situation, I guess. Uh, but at that time, viewership for the Golden Girls had been in decline for some time. And then NBC put the show, The Golden Palace, up against Family Matters over on ABC in what was known as the uh, dead block. Like, yeah. you just didn't compete against that show. You weren't going to win TGIF. it. Yeah. Yeah. So it never experienced the same levels of success as the Golden Girls. It wasn't good. I remember a couple of episodes, seeing a couple of episodes of it. It was... Could have knocked me over with a feather when I read about it, because I it wasn't even in my consciousness. Because I think, like, actually Stan has a bit of a bigger role in that one, too, oh, for boy. some reason, which... Well, because Dorothy didn't want a part of it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, season two's last episode is a pilot of sorts for the show that it would eventually become Empty Nest. And again, I was high, so I got halfway through the episode, and I'm like, what is happening here? Like... I think the the ladies have only been in this episode for, like, a combined total of 30 seconds. Like, what am I watching? Like, yeah. what is happening? So, on the Golden Girls, uh, it starts with a neighbor of the girls telling them about how lonely she is with her kids out of the house and her husband working all the time. Uh, he's a doctor, a very busy doctor. And so, between that in-season pilot and the actual premiere of the show, uh, Empty Nest, the show was substantially reworked and had a huge success in its own right, lasting for seven years. The plot was changed to feature a retired pediatrician dealing with the loss of his wife and the growing of his daughters. The only detail that remained unchanged was the existence of the skeevy airline pilot friend that would pop in and out for comedic purposes. So kind of like the live-action version of Quagmire from The Family Guy. Say, like Quagmire? Yes, exactly like Quagmire. And I was going to say, like, when you started that, I was like, that does not sound at all like emptiness, because no. it wasn't a woman, like, it was a man. Exactly. And the dog, right? Yes. Like, the dog wasn't in the Golden Girls in pilot, or in-season pilot for the show. But it was in later seasons. I think they puppy sit, or they dog sit, or that dog oh, pops okay. in and out a bunch of times. Yeah, because... Um, they're supposed to live near them? They do. They're, like, on the same street. And even when they built, like, the exterior of the houses on the lot, the universal lot, the houses were, like, right next to each other, too, for external shots. So. Do, 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 yeah. do. <laughs> uh, and the last spinoff was a show called Nurses. Uh, and that was actually a spinoff of Empty Nest, and it only ran for three seasons. It stars no one that we would recognize. The basic premise featured a strong-willed nurse, a sarcastic nurse, a dim-witted nurse, and a Latina nurse who frequently reminisced about her homeland, the fictional San Pequino. So it sounds to me like they tried to capture the magic that was the Golden Girls, but in a hospital. <laughs> so. Yes. Uh, before season two, uh, well, season one wasn't very successful, so before season two, the show was heavily retooled. It still didn't work, and so for season three, they tried to bring in Lonnie Anderson as a hospital administrator to produce the yeah. star power. It still didn't work, and it was quickly canceled after that. I gotta say that that was not too quick if they only canceled after three seasons. They gave it a lot of time. Oh, yeah, like, they were really trying to get that money out of that well. <laughs> Uh, Betty White played Rose Nyland on all four shows, The Golden Girls, Empty Nest, Nurses, and The Golden Palace. 
And Estelle actually played Sophia on six different shows. So the four, the Golden Girls and the three spinoffs, but then also Blossom, like I said, in 1990 and Ladies Man in 1999. And I have no clue what Ladies Man is or how she would have appeared. This vaguely sounds familiar. Right. Vaguely to me too, but I can't put my finger on it. I'm assuming it's an NBC property though to have the rights. So what I think makes the show hold up now is the characters. Like, this show is 30 years old, and it can still be watched and enjoyed, and there's no... There's very little dating to it. Except for the obvious decor. (laughs) Yes, that's painful. Although I think we all know people of that generation who probably still have questionable decorating taste. But yes. So it's the characters that I think we can all love. Dorothy is a long-suffering public school teacher whose husband left her for a stewardess after almost 30 years of marriage. Her mother, Sophia, breaks out of the nursing home that she had been living in. After causing a fire. (laughs) Yes, uh, in order to move in with her daughter and roommates. Uh, The house they live in is owned by Blanche, who is a sexually liberated Southern Belle and widow. And the fourth roommate is Rose, who is from Minnesota and moved to Miami for the better weather after her husband, Charlie, died. So that's kind of a general broad strokes. Ages are hard to pin down, but I figured in the first season or two, like from the impression that I got, they were actually supposed to be around 50 years old, which is much younger than I would have pegged them at. Yeah, like I would have. Yeah, I suspect that's because we're now closer to that age than we were when we would have originally seen the show. And so everyone over the age of 40 back then seemed agent. Agent? Yeah, that's true. And now you're like, oh, crap, I'm creeping up on that (laughs) mark. Well, I think even still, like, I would look at that and go, there's no way like that. Yeah. Also, 60 in 1982 looks very different from 60 in 2019. That is true. (laughs) When the original pilot script was submitted to Disney Touchstone, Michael Eisner, who was Disney president at the time, liked it, but he felt that something was missing. He thought a show about three old women living together might scare away younger viewers, so he asked Suzanne Harris to keep working at it. And then she added the character of Sophia which gave that mother-daughter dynamic that would appeal to kind of all age groups and not just the elderly age group. After Sophia was added and a pilot was shot, uh, a character named Coco, who was the gay male servant, was cut from the series. So he only appears in that one. And I said that after I was watching it on YouTube, and I was like, they had a a gay houseboy? Yes. Yes. Who you would recognize if you saw him, but you would never know his name because he went on to have a very big character actor career after that. Yes, he seemed familiar. Yes, yes. So as suspected by a very high me when I was watching the show and thinking of this episode, uh, this show was groundbreaking for the topics that it Mm -hmm. covers. This is one of the few series of its era to include openly gay and lesbian characters. The pilot featured Coco, the gay personal chef for the women. Blanche's openly gay brother, Clayton, appeared in a few episodes, and in another episode, there was an old friend of Dorothy's who stopped by who was a lesbian and had just lost her, I mean, life partner probably was the term they would have used back then, but wife now, and had a little thing for Rose. They were spending a lot of time together. And doesn't Dorothy's brother cross-dress? Yes. Yes. But he's married and has children, and cross-dressers aren't necessarily gay. Yes. But... The LGBTQ community embraces lots of different colors of that flag, yeah. But there's still that, even, like, not even being straight, but as a cross-dress, like, that's still Oh, yeah, in the 80s, it would have all been seen as the same. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Uh, one episode dealt with the challenges of growing old when one of Sophia's friends is dealing with Alzheimer's. It's an honest and heartbreaking look at an illness that causes someone to slip away, and that sometimes the support from loved ones is not enough to make it a manageable daily life to have. Another addresses interracial relationships when Dorothy's son announces he's engaged to an older black lady. It wasn't a popular topic of discussion on primetime TV then, or even now, really. Like, now we have a lot of uh, mixed-race couples, but we skipped over the discussion point of how and when and why it became, quote-unquote, okay in society to see yeah. that. So uh, They address an issue that really drives me crazy, and that's when medical professionals brush off women when they have concerns about their health. So Dorothy is feeling run down in one episode, but her doctor, Jeffrey Tambor, suggests that she just dye her hair, which will perk her right up, even though she's suffering from chronic fatigue disease. Uh, Dorothy confronts him while he's out to dinner with his wife, and it's the wife who tells her husband to shut his pie hole. <laughs> uh, Blanche's daughter explores getting pregnant via an artificial insemination. So the episode highlighted the technology that was becoming more widely known and used and confronted the archaic mindsets of what made a family and how issues of infertility should, could, and would be handled. So it kind of started to normalize that. Assisted suicide is becoming a more widely discussed topic, especially as countries like our own pass laws to protect the practice. But the ladies tackled the issue back in season five when a friend of Sophia's asked her to be there with her as she ended her life. Suicide isn't exactly a popular topic on TV now, let alone then, but elder suicide is rarely, if never, talked about. So it was an important yeah. topic to touch on. Following a blood transfusion years earlier, Rose learns that she may have been exposed to HIV. The episode deals with her wait for test results, and at the height of the HIV slash AIDS epidemic and scare of the 80s and early 90s. The AIDS panic? The AIDS panic. It was an important message to spread when the entire messaging behind that episode became that HIV wasn't a bad person's disease. And that was incredibly important message to get out there at the time, because it was linked to the gay male scene, and people thought it was a deviant disease that you picked up, but you deserved to get it if you had it, which obviously not the case at all, <laughs> no matter how you get it. Um, but it was a serious uh, social issue at the time. In another episode, Rose is cut off from her deceased husband's pension plan and must find a new job. She is soon faced with age discrimination and the fear of not being able to make rent. In one scene, she discusses often seeing an older woman digging through trash and tells the other ladies, I wonder what she did to get herself into a fix like that. I thought, well, she must be lazy or she must be pretty stupid to let something like this happen. The truth is, she's me. So dealing with this whole concept of, like, life isn't always what you planned, and nope. things change. And so for all these really heavy topics, it was still dealt with humor and compassion and love. And yeah. 177 episodes, and I've talked about maybe seven of them. So they're not all deep like that, but when they no. are, they're more poignant for all that. So uh, let's talk briefly about that iconic theme song. Thank you for being a friend. Cynthia Free sang the theme song uh, for the show. However, it was originally written and recorded in 1978 by Andrew Gold, whose version reached 25 on the Billboard pop chart. I like it, of course, but some of the lyrics always struck me as a little odd, particularly the lines, uh, if you threw a party, invited everyone you knew, well, you would see the biggest gift would be for me. And personally, I never liked that imagery because I don't think friendship should be dependent on the size or presence of gifts and gift giving. I like the messaging in general behind the song, but some of the lyrics are dicey. 
And then when you're reading the full version of the lyrics, uh, it just gets worse because there's two lines that say, if it's a car you lack, I'll surely buy you a Cadillac. Stop buying me things, why not offer me a ride? <laughs> That's just my little ball of neuroses though, so. And here's just a buttload of interesting facts about the show taken from IMTV's trivia section. So the first episode attracted more than 25 million viewers, beating out the Cosby show for the number one spot in the ratings that week. 25 million for a premiere of a new show. That's impressive. But also that was... They had like four channels to pick from. But yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's not like now yes. where you're lucky to get... Yes. Like the Game of Thrones phenomenon is probably not going to happen again. No. Uh, when the show first aired, the Queen Mother loved it so much that she wrote to the four actresses and asked them to perform a live show especially for her, and they obliged and acted out an episode in which the girls visit London, uh, and they perform that on stage for the Queen and her family. So I always knew I loved the Queen Mum for a reason. She has good taste. <laughs> she was also a drunk, but hey. But like a cheerful drunk. Yeah, she was very cheerful <laughs> drunk. She was a very cheerful drunk. The actresses figure they consumed over 100 cheesecakes during the show's seven-year run, which was particularly hard for B. Arthur as she hated cheesecake in real life. Oh, that sucks. Yes. Uh, Estelle Getty underwent a facelift between the first and second seasons, much to the horror of the makeup crew who already had to go to great lengths to make uh, Getty look old on camera. It would take 45 minutes in makeup to transform Estelle Getty into Sophia. And there's a few episodes where they do flashbacks where she's not in any makeup and she's a young looking woman, which makes me even more confused as to why she looked exactly like Sophia on like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Like the exact same look. So she went through it all over. Like, it's a whole thing. Although there were four women living in the house, there were always only three chairs around that kitchen table. That was strictly due to the limit of filming to avoid either squeezing all four shoulder to shoulder or having one actress with her back to the camera. B. Arthur was always given the centered chair, both because of her height and also in order to catch her priceless facial expressions in reaction to either Blanche's remembrances of sexual encounters past, Rose's St. Olaf stories, or Sophia's picture at monologues. <laughs> uh, Estelle Getty suffered from stage fright every night for 26 weeks during the show's tapings. Due to her intense stage fright, during those tapings she would often freeze on camera as she was the least experienced of the four actresses, she was intimidated being out there. She stated in a 1988 interview that working every week with talents like B. Arthur and Betty White scared her out of her wits, and she felt like a fraud and was worried that fans would, quote, find out that she wasn't as good as her co-stars. Which, like, not true. She's my favorite. I know. <laughs> According to Betty White, she and B. Arthur did not get along throughout the series. Allegedly, B. Arthur called Betty White a see you next Tuesday. Uh, White acknowledges that Arthur didn't like her and has said that it was due to her internally optimistic personality, which she said rubbed Arthur the wrong way. Uh, sadly, but probably no surprise, uh, B. Arthur didn't keep in touch with the other women once the show wrapped and had to be reminded when she had to go places to see them. <laughs> Rue McClanahan was the smartest one on the set because she had a clause written into her contract saying that she was allowed to keep all of Blanche's custom-made clothing. McClanahan had 13 closets filled with the designer wardrobe in her co-op in Manhattan when she died. Wow. I mean, at a certain point, you can't wear those shoulder pads out anymore, but, like, smart thinking at the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, this is so 80s, yeah. too. <laughs> Easier, like, 2000s, just, like, bombing down, like, Broadway. <laughs> and, like, sequin tops. In New York, you could probably, probably get away with it. Probably would have gotten away yeah. with it, yeah. 
the show was originally intended to end after season five, but B. Arthur agreed to stay for two more years, which did end after season seven. The show was a hit in 60 countries and remade in England, Greece, and Russia. I did not know that it was remade in England. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to have to hunt that down because, you know, the British sense of humor, it's got to be really good. Yeah. <laughs> Although maybe it's sort of like when American shows try to remake British, it doesn't quite come off. So I wonder, is yes. it better or do they miss the mark just a little bit? Right. I think it doesn't work coming this way because the Americans just don't have that sense of humor that you need to pull yeah. off that dry. Like, The Office is the only one that has ever done it spectacularly well. Uh, Rose's Norwegian is mostly gibberish and usually adds to the humor when seen as a subtitle. With her accent and pronunciations, though, it comes off as genuine, even though it's Swedish chef's level of like, a bork, a bork, a bork. <laughs> so. It doesn't mean anything. No. It's like someone just gave her an Ikea catalog and just... <laughs> <laughs> Go to town. Um... Side note, mm -hmm. we drafted Eric Carlson okay. to play oh, yeah. here in Ottawa. One of, after he was doing his like rookie training, I think it was TSN, they got him. Um, they brought him to Ikea. Because <laughs> he's Swedish. Right. And they were, he was laughing because like, the names actually don't mean anything right. or they're not real words or they mean things like, this bed is named after a meatball. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. Let's see. In 2003, an off-Broadway production of the show titled Golden Girls Live! Exclamation point, ran for several months before Susan Harris, the show creator, demanded the production be stopped, and the entire cast consisted of male actors in drag. Which... I kind of want to see! <laughs> I definitely want to see, and I think shutting them down is the complete opposite of what the show would have, like, the four ladies of the show would have wanted. Yes. Or, like, the whole spirit of it, but... I mean, I'm assuming Harris wasn't getting a cut of the change. I was so. just going to say, it was probably because they were paying royalties. <laughs> so why is the show still so popular and important? Like I said, it's over 30 years old after all. Well, it was wildly popular and beloved when it came out. As mentioned, its first episode drew more than 25 million viewers, and it was one of the top 10 TV shows throughout its entire run. It's one of only three TV shows in history where all the primary actors won Emmys for their roles. And the other two are All in the Family and Will and Grace. So, good company there. It is undeniably well-written and well-acted. The characters are distinctive and very fleshed out. Its progressive nature is hardwired into its DNA. Show creator Suzanne Harris told Out Magazine, quote, We like to tackle not outrageous issues, but important issues. Things that I knew that people went through that hadn't been addressed on television. Uh, Harris, like I said, worked on All in the Family and then wrote for Maud, so it wasn't a new concept to her to bring in this kind of progressive point of view. It is a casually feminist show. Four women living and loving and surviving on their own and on their own terms, all while building their own networks and families with each other. It's women supporting women. And I don't think we get enough of that on television or just in general society these days. So I don't think we get enough people supporting people. <laughs> true. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> Uh, the Burns are savage, but in a way that you can only get away with the people that you love and people that love you back and you're giving and taking. Um, I think you can only insult people like that when you pick those people and those people pick you back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like you you have seen probably it's probably my favorite episode is the um, murder mystery. No, it wasn't in the first two I seasons. Th I thought it was the second season. Oh, that's the, my favorite burn. <laughs> 
I will have to put in another Amazon order to get it. Uh, the show is sex positive and it's senior citizen positive. Media and Values magazine ran a survey about the show and included some quotes from survey respondents with the published results, including this one, which the person said, quote, I like this program because it gives me hope that there's life after 50. Uh, Hollywood is notorious for casting 30-somethings as high school kids, so this show depicting real people of all ages, but primarily at ages that looked familiar to the masses, resounds even now as it did back yeah. then. And finally, it confronted issues of race and prejudice, disability and bigotry, and those are conversations we still have to have today. The ladies just handle it all with grace and humor. I would probably be very disappointed that we still have to have these conversations. Yeah, probably. Oh, pity. So, in closing, I would like to say that the true natural resource shortage that we are facing is the lack of Golden Girls. We're down to only one left, so we all have to do our best to protect Betty White. I know, and she's hilarious. She is. But that is my story about the Golden Girls. It's lovely. I love the Golden Girls. So do I. And they pop up, like, everywhere. Like, um, the OC. That was how those two girls that like Seth, like, found common ground. Yeah. They like, both loved the Golden, the Golden Girls. Girls. Like... Who would have thought, right? Like, yeah. young high school. But anyway, it, like, I think it is just a universally belovable show. And I remember because I loved it when I was younger, when I was a kid, and my mom was like, I don't know if this is appropriate to watch. <laughs> well, it probably is not. <laughs> but, you know, I discovered that it created a lot of my sarcasm. Yes. It was definitely my love of Dorothy. Yes. Like, she was my spirit animal. Yeah. I don't know if anybody else in my family is as sarcastic <laughs> dry humor as I do but I think a lot of my just viciousness comes from Sophia <laughs> but still some of my favorite lines are like you know uh the one the murder mystery where she's like um Blanche is very offended that someone else is flirting with the man that she was flirting with and Rose is like but you were flirting with him and Rose is like but I'm southern it's in my heritage <laughs> and Rose looks kind of confused and Dorothy turns around and goes her mother was a slut too, Rose. <laughs> and I'm just like, there it is. There it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm always, I was trying to figure out the last, the two up seasons that I was watching, like, whether or not Blanche ever actually cheated on George. Some of the things she would say kind of hinted that she would either get really close to that line or... I think she would get close, but she would But then, loved. like, shut it down. Yeah. She loved George so much. Yeah. But yeah. I love that show. And yes, I I had promised myself I was not going to buy any more TV on DVD because it's becoming a, an obsolete medium. But this isn't streaming anywhere in Canada. So I think no, this isn't. might be my last I know. purchase of TV shows, which I don't enjoy, but like, it's worth it. Physical media? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that is our episode for this week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. Uh, from there, you can check out the support tab to get a link to our Patreon page and come on board as a patron of the show. And you can also check out the merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store so you can buy some of our lovely merch to wrap us out in the big bad world. And if you want to email us to let us know about rabbit holes that you like to fall down or that you would like us to fall down on your behalf, you can do that by emailing rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter at rabbitholespod. We are on Facebook at rabbitholespodcast page and Instagram at rabbitholespodcast. 
Uh, if you like what we're doing, you can go and write a review or rate us or give us a recommendation or just tell your friends about it. Hello to my current, uh, my new coworker <laughs> and his wife who was listening to our most recent episode on the weekend. So thank you for spending some of your long weekend with us. And they haven't turned you into HR yet, I'm assuming. No, exactly. So, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, also, a reminder that the Ottawa Podcast Festival is coming up on August 24th, 2019, here in Ottawa. Head over to ottawapodcastfestival.com to get information about the lineup and to buy your tickets. We will be performing. We will. So, at the very least, you should come out and see us. But there's also eight other great Ottawa shows that will be performing, so you should mm-hmm. definitely check them out. Uh, and so, yeah, that brings us to the end of the show. And there's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.